Well, we've been having a lot of excitement going around here in a number of different ways, but some of the excitement that we've had going on in the church is uh, a lot of people having babies. And uh, it, it kind of came through me to the grapevine this last week that, uh, that uh, Dustin and Rachel, who recently had their first child, uh, had a really interesting experience. He was found by Rachel one night uh, standing in the, their child's, uh, the new infant's baby's bedroom, staring into the crib. And he was just obviously moved with emotion, just, you know, kind of bewilderment and perplexed and amazement. And it was so obvious that it really moved Rachel. And she just comes in and sees him, and he's starting to tear up, and she's starting to tear up. And he, she puts her arm around him and says, Honey, what's, what's going on in your thoughts? And he says, Well, it's amazing. It's just amazing. I just can't see how anybody can make this crib for 72 bucks. Sorry. I figured you'd be easy ones to pick on, so I, you, there are several people with new babies in here, and I just, <laughs> thanks for being, good, for being good sports. You know, we've been talking a lot about emotions, and we've been talking about a lot of other things in this series, and, and one of the themes for our series has been that if we don't know ourselves deeply, we won't know God deeply. And yet a lot of us, for various reasons, tend to live our faith with more head knowledge. And, and it's not that we're saying through this series that head knowledge is wrong. We have a value that we believe here that says we're going to be deeply spiritual and we're going to be deeply practical. We're going to be deeply experiential and we're going to be deeply rational. We're going to be deeply, deeply mystical and we're going to also be deep in our just practical wisdom that we live things out through. And we need both. But the reality is that many of us just live in one or the other or really neither. If you're like me, you, you lived a lot of your life in neither deeply experiential or deeply practical because you were taught like me growing up in a northern European-influenced Stoic culture that extremes were something you eliminated, especially as you grew up and became mature. And, and, and so you didn't live in in really either, and so you'd go through prayers at the table, and you'd pray prayers over your food, like, you know, God is love, God is good, and we thank him for our food, and he just did it to get on to the meal, and it, and it just becomes this kind of knowledge of rote stuff we do. And the problem with that, though, is what that has led to in many of our faiths and many of our church experiences is that we tend to live off of other people's spirituality. And we never cultivate a deeply spiritual aspect to ourselves. We live off of somebody else's message or we listen, listen to messages on the, on the radio or we listen to worship songs, but, but we never cultivate our own personal relationship with God in a deep way and our own habits of connecting with him and hearing his voice and knowing his presence and following his leading. And through this series, we've been dealing with that whole theme and, and in the process, we've dealt with a lot of uncomfortable things. I mean, who wants to face our family of origin stuff? I mean, that's not fun to face. Who wants to face our pain or our loss or our grief or the reality of the times when God seems far away? And they haven't been topics that necessarily have been feel good, walk away, happy, motivated to face them type of topics. And yet they're very real things that we all face. They're very real things that tank our emotions, that tank our pursuit of God, that create distance and create dissonance in our relationship with God and with others on a regular basis. And today, 
As I was preparing for this, I was reminded, just thinking about who we are in today's culture and the challenges of living deeply spiritual. And I was reminded that really in America today, we're not that much different than England was about 250 years ago at the, at the, beginning, of the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. The time period there and the, and the life of the church was dying out in England at that time. People were leaving church. Why? Because they were working 14, 15 hours a day, six, seven days a week. They were busy. They were pressured. They had tension. There was difficulty of surviving just with all the demands of life. And it's really not all that different from the way we live today. And so their faith was in decline and they were going away from God. And, and during that time, it was very mechanical. It was the, the faith was limited to, I go to church, I do the right things, I try to live a good life, I pray, I do the things pre- preachers tell me to do, and hopefully I'm going to go to heaven. And that was the extent of the faith to a large extent. And it's not all that dissimilar to our American culture today. And yet during that time, there were a number of great spiritual leaders that rose up. One of them in particular was a guy named John Wesley, who, if you really look at his influence in the Christian faith, it's really quite amazing. In less than 250 years, John Wesley's influence has resulted in over 500 million people having a relationship with Christ throughout the world. Now that's influence. I mean, even if it takes 250 years, can you imagine the influence of your life affecting 500 million or more people for Christ? It's amazing. He focused completely in his preaching on a personal relationship with Jesus, like, like Jesus did, like Paul did, a personal relationship with God. The fact that our relationship is founded in your ability, my ability, to understand God's presence, to sense him, to know what he's leading, to, to know, we call it know his voice, but it's really just knowing how he's nudging us, what he's speaking to us, how he's leading us, how he's wanting to work through us on a daily basis in a real way. And Wesley was a, a big-name preacher not only in England but in the U.S. And during the time when he was preaching in the U.S., there were two big names who were big preachers back then. It was John Wesley and another one was George Whitfield. And And Whitfield was the better speaker. He drew the larger crowds. 20,000, 30,000 people would come to hear him. And some of you may remember me using this before, but, but Whitfield, at the end of his life, in reflecting on his ministry... And, and comparing himself to, to Wesley because they were the two greatest names on the American landscape at the time. And, and picture this. Whit- Whitfield is at the end of his life and he says, my converts, the people whose lives were changed and, and, and found depth in faith in Christ that lasted and made real impactful difference in their life. He says, my, my converts are like a rope of sand. Can, can you picture that? Have you ever tried to pick up sand and just let it fall through your fingers? You see, when Wesley was preaching, a lot of people critiqued him really, really strongly and said, oh man, you're just about methods and you're not about God. In fact, it was out of that critique that came the name of the movement that was named after him. They just said, oh, you, all you Methodists. It was a, a term of not compliment. It was a term of derision that they used and Wesley adopted it. And that, that whole term of derision for Wesley then that became the name of his movement is really the focus of today's message and our final step in this quest for life. And we're going to move on to a different series soon. 
You see, Wesley preached not only personal relationship, but he preached the fact that unless we had structured habits, unless we had methods by which we ordered our life, that those ideals of a personal relationship would just be nice ideas, but they wouldn't actually result in relationship. That, that, we, would, that we would satisfy ourselves in our pursuit of faith with entertainment in a large group setting, coming to a place with an inspiring music or an inspiring message, and we'd walk away with no real faith. That we would be a people about nice beliefs about life, but that without the sacrifice, without the structure, without the methods, without the cultivation that we would never have a faith that impacted our life in a way that made just a beautiful garden of growth in our life and the prosperity or the fullness of life that God wants to bring to us. Wesley got his methods from the Bible, and, and throughout all of history, Christians of every area that have led anything significant in terms of people coming to Christ and coming to faith that was real, that changed their lives, that, that made a difference, not just for a moment, not just for uh, fire insurance to get into heaven, but transformed lives, used similar methods, and they called them different things. One of them throughout history that, it, that is really an interesting name that they called was living through the rule of life, this term, the rule of life, and some of you may have heard it. It was originally uh, created in about the second or third century in a Greek-speaking culture, but, but it, it drew on the parable of Jesus in John 15 of the vine and the branches. And it basically, that, that parable, if you, if you know it, many of us do, just simply says this. It says, remain in me. Be connected personally to me. Let my life be your life. Let there be this transfer of life between me, God, and you every day. Let it be that personal. Remain in me. Because if you don't remain in me, it says you can't produce any fruit. You can't have any abundance. You can't have any of the good stuff that you really long for in life. And then, and then it goes on, not just in personal relationship, but it goes on to this whole method and structure thing where, where he says, allow me to structure you by pruning you, by shaping you, by removing things and, and, and repositioning things and allowing them to grow in a way that you allow me to structure, have some structure to your life, where I can even touch the things that aren't pleasant always to look at, the things that might feel painful in your life that you want to avoid, but would you allow me to touch those areas? And that's really what a lot of this series has been about, because it's in allowing him to prune those areas, to touch them, that we find life beyond what we can imagine. And Jesus' stories are, 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 are so rich in meaning, not just in the obvious, but this story being told to an agrarian culture who did a lot of, of, of cultivation of grapes and, and, and the creation of wine goes even beyond that. Because this whole term, the rule, and that's now translated in English, rule, came from a Greek word that meant trellis. And you know... If you've ever raised anything that has vines like grapes or anything like that, if you just let them bunch up on the ground and, and don't provide any structure for them to grow on or attach to or spread out, that they, they just don't produce much, right? And so this whole rule of life, this whole trellis of life, this whole method thing that Wesley called it and that people derided him of is just basically what's the simple structure in your life that is going to allow things to spread out and grow and find room to produce fruit in your life. And that's really what we're talking about today. 
In Acts 2, we get to see the early church's trellis. We get to see it right after the Pentecost happened, which was when the Holy Spirit came and filled them, and, and we see Peter preaching to the crowds when all that happened, and, and here's it says what happened. It says, those who accepted his message that day were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. In other words, the church went from 120 people to 3,000 in a couple hours. And then it goes on immediately after them to describe this trellis, this structure that they put in place that not only effectively discipled that massive growth, but, but led to continuing contagious growth and just life that was rubbing off everywhere on people. And the, and the, simple, the simple trellis is this in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, this is one of the more preached on verses, and it's probably that way because it's so hard for us to keep that in focus and live it. But let's break that down. They devoted themselves. When you, when you think of the word devoted, what do you think of? Who do you think of? You probably think of people like Mother Teresa. You probably think about people who gave their life for a belief or a cause or a faith. Or, and it's usually, devotion is usually this term attached to faith, and rightly so. Because devotion in and of itself is not about us. It's not something that comes from us. We're devoted to this sense of calling, this sense of higher purpose that God places in our life that we need to grasp a hold of and follow. It's this deep, lasting commitment, this deep, lasting ownership in us that, that we just can't let go of. It drives us to who we are. And at the heart of it is this idea of faithfulness, this character quality of faithfulness. And faithfulness is one of those things in our culture that we have a really hard time understanding. We really have a hard time getting right. For example, in marriage, all of us long for faithfulness in marriage, right? None of us longs to have a marriage with unfaithfulness in it, right? We all long for that. But faithfulness starts in how we date, Faithfulness starts in what we, what we decide not to watch or what we decide not to read. Faithfulness is, is born in, in what we just choose not to joke about and what we choose to not speak about or to speak about. Faithfulness is not even just in a marriage, it's not even just that. But faithfulness in a marriage is also about, about even how we handle finances and how we handle the little things in our life because faithfulness is not a situation-specific character trait. It's character. It's character in and of itself. It's not situation-specific. You, you're not faithful over here and unfaithful over here. It is a quality that you possess or you do not possess it. And it affects every area of life. It's, it's this faithfulness to God that drives our devotion to his sense of calling and his sense of life and his sense of purpose in him. It's God-centered. Faithfulness is about our relationship to other people. Devotion is as well to God. And then it goes on in the structure to say that there's devotion to four things. And we're just going to break it down real quick. The apostles' teaching. Now, you know, we could, just, we could just look at that and say, well, that just means we have to be faithful to the teaching of the people God's ordained to teach us in our church or whatever. And that's true. That's part of it. But it goes beyond that to, in, in the connotation of the role of the apostles and the way they worked in the church. It goes beyond that to say it's a faithfulness to being good followers. 
It's faithfulness to, to realizing that even though God chooses for some odd reason to use the church, that he's called us to be a part of the church, which is not this building and not the things we do here, but it's us as a group of people. And that for whatever reason, which I'll always wonder why, he chooses people to put in leadership, whether it's a pastor or whether it's a small group leader or an elder. And he asks us, even though everyone in those roles is imperfect, for us to choose to devote ourselves to the purpose and mission, even in the midst of the imperfection. To be committed, even in the midst of imperfection. I don't know why God chooses to use a church, a group of people, but he does. All throughout the Bible, he's chosen to use us to be the agents of the people who rub his life off on other people and people find him through us. It's an amazingly weird and awesome thing. Devoted to fellowship. You know, we've talked friends with faith and friends with faith is not something that I can say enough for all of us to do it. It, it. it really comes down to each of us here deciding that we, each and every one individually and all of us together are going to express that kind of care for one another that we would treat people around us like friends and care for them sacrificially and generously. It means even that, it means even that, that I'm going to be willing on a regular basis to, to let a friendship that's close to me become just a little bit more distant when it becomes mature so that I can add somebody to be a friend with me who's still searching to know God because God wants me to rub his life off on them because of the gracious way he loves me. And it starts in simple fellowship. It starts in just doing stuff together. It starts on things like the birthday party for Jesus on December 10th where maybe you're just going to decide to go invite the, the single parent next to you to come with you that day and drop the kids off and you're going to take them out and you're going to go shopping with them or you're going to go to a movie with them or maybe it's a couple friend of yours that, that's still searching for God and you're just going to say, hey, can we just hang out and do something today? Let's drop our kids off at the church and let's go do something together. It's just simple stuff like that. Fellowship, friendship, spending time together. Devoted to the breaking of bread, it says. Now, we can rightly talk about this as the practice of communion because that's the term that was used in the early church to talk about the idea of communion, which we're actually celebrating today as well. But if we stop there, especially in the way we think about communion and the way we practice it today all too often, we miss most of the point of what this passage is talking about. Because in our practice of communion, we typically come to the large group setting like this, right? And we get our elements as we walk in the door, or we have them down front, and we come get them, and, and we, we, we say a few scriptures, and we maybe make a challenge or an invitation for us to examine a portion of our life, and then we go back, and we basically do this private, individual thing in the midst of a large group crowd, Right? But in the context of this passage, which we'll finish reading in just a moment, if you really look at it, the breaking of bread and the practice of the early church was done in relationship. And it meant that we were doing it together and we were not just doing it individually, but we were taking time with friends, with our small group, with family to confess to them where we're at that day. And it talks about doing this daily from house to house, that, that we're getting together on a regular basis and we're being open and honest with our lives. We're willing to stand before people and say, I really messed up today, and I need forgiveness. Can you pray for me? Or not even just that. Confession isn't always sin. 
that we're confessing. Confession could also be, I feel like God is calling me to do this. I feel like God wants me to reach out to this person and it makes me really nervous and I have a hard time doing it. But it's just this life of living honestly and openly and and humbly before each other and with each other where we just don't hide stuff, where we let people in. Because as we've looked at in the last few weeks a couple different times, the Bible tells us, confess your sins to one another so that you can be what? Healed. Healed. Religion doesn't save us. Honesty before God and with other people saves us and heals us. And as I was thinking about this, it it, it combines back to an idea on the teaching as well. Teaching is not, in our world, teaching is so much about information and knowledge acquisition. And that's one of the reasons we all live in such a head place and not a heart place so often in our life because all of our schooling, all the teaching, all the messages we've heard in church are usually one or two or three or four points of knowledge that if we just put these things into practice, we'll be okay, right? Or if we just believe right, we'll be okay. And it becomes so much about head knowledge. but, But teaching in and of itself, self is not measured by the information. It's not measured by how you deliver something. It's measured by life change. Think about this. Paul the Apostle, writer of most of the New Testament, one of the greatest leaders of all time, says this about himself. He says, I am the worst of sinners. And in another place he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, How do you put those together? And what do you do with that? Here's one of the main leaders of the church talking openly with people about saying, I screw up, I sin, I do things I don't want to do, he talks about in another place. And he's talking about his faults. And to many of us, that seems counterintuitive. It's like, why would I want to follow this guy? Why would I want to go to him for help if he's messed up? And can he really help me if he's messed up? Can he really help me if he's sinning? But Paul basically says that teaching is not so much about the end product in terms of knowledge. It's about learning how to practice faith. And and what Paul is trying to teach us is how to practice faith in the midst of our struggle with our own faults and our own sin and our our own imperfection. And in his teaching, he is modeling for us this idea of confession. Because that's where we're healed. Yes, the good news is that God does indeed change us, but he, humble, but he changes those who are humble, who have no need to hide, no need to self-protect, no need to look good anymore because we're completely surrendered to him. And the good news of the gospel is not us. It's about God. The good news is that God comes to us and loves us and pursues us and forgives us repeatedly even when we mess up. The good news is first and foremost about God. And that's one of the reasons why I know for some I've heard that it's a bit of a struggle because I've talked openly in this series about some of the areas I struggle with emotional health and and I even talked about the fact that I go to counseling. But I do that because those things should be normal for us as Christians. We should regularly seek out counsel when we need it. We should regularly confess our faults to one another because that's where the power of transformation and life change is found. It should be normal. And this quest for life, the ideas we presented, are some of the most powerful ideas I think we've talked about since I've been here. 
in terms of deepening our faith and deepening our ability to reach other people and deepening the quality of life for us. And yet, they could just as easily be benign in our lives if we choose to not live them in the context of open and honest discussion about where we're at with other people. If we choose to try to do it individualistically, then we miss the whole trellis of life that that provides growth for us. And we'll be a, a bunch of vines clumped on the ground hoping we produce grapes if we don't live it with each other, if we're not honest with each other. And the last thing it talks about is to be, be devoted to prayer. And when we think of prayer, we usually think of individual prayer. We think of praying at the table. We think about a quiet time where we pray. We think about lists where we go through and we pray for the people in our lives, and those are all important. But the context here is not individual prayer. The context here is praying together, praying in the context of other people, praying in your small group. We want every small group to pray every time. We don't want you to be in your small group and take prayer requests and then not pray and go home and say, well, I'll just pray for you at home. And we don't want you to just pray your list, to create your list and pray your list. We also want you to just spend time in silence and solitude like we've talked about, hoping to hear God, waiting to hear God. Whether you do or not doesn't make any difference in your small group, but are you going to spend time with other people trying to hear God's voice and create space that he could speak to you? and maybe speak through you by giving you spiritual gifts of insight or discernment or understanding that would, that, would, that would allow him to speak through you to somebody else to bring blessing to their life and to bring encouragement to their life. And the reality is that when we do this, we're going to make mistakes, right? That's the reason we have as one of our stated values at Quest something very profound and very simple. Oops, try again. Read it. It's on our website. Oops, Try again. But let's at least try. Let's create space for God to speak because the reality is that God remains abstract to us. and It becomes very difficult for us to discover and be confident in the fact that we understand his leading or his voice or how he's trying to communicate to us if we do it on our own. Because as long as we do it just on our own, we're going to constantly walk through the day going, was that God? Was it pizza? Right? But if we do it in the context of each other and God all of a sudden, if we we wait in silence and solitude and God says something to us and and we go, you know, friend, whatever your name is, Steve, I don't know, whatever your name is, next to me, you know, in a small group, I think God is, hopefully you know their name in your small group, but, but you say, I think God may be saying this. And wow, what if that happens to be right on and they know it's right and the confirmation you get and the sense of understanding you get of that's how God speaks to me. Unless we do this stuff together in the context of a relationship, God always remains somebody easy to doubt and an abstract reality. But when we do it together, we start to get the idea that he's confirming his presence. We're seeing it happen. We're seeing prayers answered. We're seeing things that we said, and the person next to us goes, how did you know that? Well, I guess God must have spoken to me because, you know, that's the way it is. The early church trellis results in this. It goes on in verse 43. It says, everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. 
All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. That sounds like life, doesn't it? In awe, amazed, daily experiencing God's presence. Not just on Sundays. Not just every few months. Daily. And it says when we live this way in life, what does it say? That we, that we live this life of pressure and it's tiring and it's just trudging and it's full of politics, right? Is that what it says? No, it says glad, sincere hearts praising God and enjoying favor among the people of the community. Doesn't that sound like what we long for? And it comes out of living through this trellis of life. And what happened? It goes on to say, and the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved because our ability to reach other people for Christ is not in our programming. We can communicate relevantly there and we try to. But it's out of the depths of deep, practical faith in each one of our lives that God becomes real to us and to our community so that the Lord could add to our number daily those who are being saved. You know, we've dealt with a lot in this series. We've dealt with a lot of things. And the idea that I'm ending up with today is that, is that unless we have structure, unless we have intentionality in what we do, unless we practice these things that we've talked about in this series together, it will just be nice ideas. You know, as we close the series, many of you have heard this statement, and many of you have said this statement. It goes kind of like this, nice dreams and great visions without a structured plan remain just nice ideas and great visions that we dream about, but they're simply wishful thinking and we never see them happen. Today, I want you to take a couple moments and grab your program and grab a pen if you don't have one there at the end of the, end of the thing. And, and there's, there's a slide that just kind of summarizes some of the things we've talked about. And I'd like you to just take, uh, take about 90 seconds here, and I'd like you to read the things on the slide. And, and these are the things we've talked about, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick the one, maybe two, not three, just just two max things up there that have touched you the most. Maybe, maybe it's the one area where you feel like you've got, you're stuck the worst and you just, can't, you just can't get this thing down. Or maybe it's the area that's creating the most pain in your life right now. And I want you to think through maybe one or two simple things, not, just one or two steps forward, not like, not like a bunch of steps forward, just one or two steps forward things that you could practice regularly for 60 days. Just one or two things for each one of the two things that you pick up there. So maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it's, uh, it's the daily office and the Sabbath, and you say, okay, so I'm going to try uh, to start moving towards the Sabbath, and I'm going to figure out a way to get two or three hours at least once a, once a week where I just have some time to contemplate God, and I'm going to sleep in one day a week. 
You know, maybe it's just maybe it's just simple like that. Something as simple like that, or maybe it's maybe it's uh, on the daily office. Maybe I'm just gonna I'm gonna set a habit. I'm gonna take ten minutes before breakfast every day, and I'm just gonna quiet myself, and I'm gonna read one scripture, and I'm gonna ask God what He wants to say to me, just just once a day, and just do those things for sixty days. Okay, so do that. Ninety seconds or so. Pick two things and one or two simple things you're gonna do, and write it down. Okay, go ahead. Okay, I know some of you have been doing this all along, so that's, you know, that's fine, but, uh, and I may not have given you enough time, just complete this at some point in the next day here if you can. I want to ask you to do two more things. I want you, if you've got your iPhone with you or your Droid or your iPad or whatever you use for a calendar, I want you to take... Uh, one to two hour time block, 60 days from now. I want you to put a calendar, put it in your calendar as a date with God where you're going to just review this again and you're going to set your next 60 days, one or two things you're going to do to move forward. That's all. Then the second thing I'm going to ask you to do is if you're in a small group, and I hope all of you will be in one at some point and try to get in one, I want you this week to actually go to your small group and talk about here's the things where I need to grow in. Here's the things I've decided to do for myself. And not just talk about it, but let everybody share, and then would you pray for each other? And ask God to bless each person in what they've decided to do. Maybe you don't even think you hear God's voice, but maybe you're just going to do something to create space to allow that to happen. Then just have your small group pray over you, and, and just pray that God would speak to you. Would you do that for me? Today we're going to end by celebrating communion, breaking bread together. As, uh, as, the, as our passage talks about. At the beginning of the series, we started the whole series off by talking about the difference between an adventure and a quest. An adventure is one of those things where we do for entertainment. We go out and we do it and we have a lot of fun. It may be really thrilling. It may be even dangerous. It gives us a buzz and we, and we come back and life continues kind of normally as it normally has been. We just kind of come back to the normal way of life. A quest is something that we never really fully return from. We either die for it or if we come back, it radically changes our life. And, and when Jesus invites us to this whole act of communion, this whole act of communion is, is him establishing with us a covenant to be like him as he came to earth in his body to live touchable and open and honest with people, to live in relationship with people. And, 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 and his blood establishes this covenant that says that, that I forgive you, but I'm also asking you to do the same thing, to give your life to me and go on a quest with me. That you'll either die from or you'll come back radically changed if you come back at all from it. And part of that commitment for us as Quest is to say, are we going to really live this out? Are we going to live a deep faith? Are we going to live a deep spirituality among ourselves? Are we going to live it openly and honestly? Are we going to practice these things that, it, that the Bible talks about, of being open and honest and confessing to one another and praying for one another and encouraging one another and supporting each other in that process? And because confession and prayer are so attached today, I'm going to ask you to respond as you take communion in a certain way. I want you to take communion on your own. We're not going to lead it beyond once I get done giving this long, drawn-out intro, which I'm trying to shorten really well here. But I want you to take it on your own. Do your business with God as you see fit. 
But then uh, those of you who are, who are here who normally help with praying after services, if you could take your communion now and then come down here, that would be great. Because I want you to respond and pray together. Now, I'm not forcing you. I don't want anybody to do something you're completely uncomfortable with. I'm asking you to stretch your comfort zone today. If your comfort zone is stretched too far to do that, I'm okay with that. Please don't take pressure from me, okay? But I want to invite you to turn to a friend and say, would you please pray for me in this area? Maybe the area you're going to ask them to pray for is, is one of the areas that you mark down on this list, an area that has just been a bear for you to overcome. Or maybe you want to come down and have somebody pray for you down here. Okay, so would you do that? I'm going to let you just do your business now with God. The worship team's going to sing. If you're uncomfortable with either of those, or even if you're going to do one of those, feel free to also join in, join in the song. We'll dismiss in a moment. As we dismiss, I want to just tell you something that Wendy reminds me of regularly. Wendy often talks to me about reminding me of, of hope. And so often we think about hope as this thing that's just kind of this intangible idea out here that we really want to see someday. But the difference between hope and wishful thinking is this. Hope brings something tangible and new to the equation. It doesn't mean we've arrived there yet, but hope's fire is lit by just new resource, new energy, new action, a new step, a, a, a new view of how far we can go and maybe take another step on the dream there, right? Some of you um, have gone through this series and, it, and it's been difficult to deal with. Many of you, have, I know from, from talking with you, have been applying this tremendously in your life, going home and saying, I'm going to start doing this, I'm going to start doing that. If you don't take the actions of applying what we've talked about, of, of actually writing some stuff down you're going to practice in, in little increments of stuff that you can do, you'll remain in this land of wishful thinking. You'll be dreaming about a vision, dreaming about a place you want to go, thinking that you're living in hope. But six months to a year from now or two years or however long it takes for you to get there, you'll come to this place where all of a sudden you go, Man, life isn't what I thought. Those lessons haven't really worked, and where's the dream happening? And all too often when we get there, we blame the church or we blame God. When the reality is we've just been living in wishful thinking. So my question for you today, and my question for you as a part of this series close, what new thing, what new energy, what new resource or action are you going to engage in? that lights the fire of hope for you. It's something we all have to wrestle with. Today, what I want to invite you to join us for the potluck as we, as we start thinking about moving outward in this Christmas season in a much more aggressive way, in a much more intentional way. It's a great time of year to do it because it's a time we celebrate the fact that God came to us. So I'd like to invite you to that potluck. If you uh, haven't come for prayer and would like prayer, some people hang out for a few minutes and pray for you, but have a great day. God bless.